Hi everyone, this is Caleb, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by David Gushy to talk with him about his brand new book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Now here on the podcast, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have conversations that are, that in many cases are much needed. And we want to create a safe place to dialogue about those things without demonizing people without, um, I was going to say, well, still we could disagree without demonizing people. We could disagree without being disrespectful to everybody. We want to engage in respectful dialogue as well. And in that, we engage in a lot of different conversations, a lot of conversations to where it's easy to disagree, a lot of conversations to where it could be very tempting, or they could be very polarizing as well. And we want to create a space to where we can engage in those topics, to where we can continue to learn from one another and learn to continue to grow as well. And that's why we have conversations like the ones that we're going to have, uh, the one that I'm going to have today with David and you know we really are on this journey of of lifelong learning and if you find yourself on that journey I would just recommend choosing to subscribe to my Substack to where each week I give three things that I am learning from or three things that are standing out to me that I'm engaging with and again it could be anything from a book to a movie to a quote to just a YouTube video that I've watched it's all just stuff that is just making me think things that are just engaging my curiosity engaging my interest and it comes to you each and every single week in an email and all you have to do is subscribe to it now as I mentioned today I'm talking with uh, David Gushy and he's somebody that I've I've known about for a little while, you know, uh, his his book "Changing Our Minds" is what first put him uh, on on my radar. And so, whenever this book, "Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies," was coming out, I knew I wanted to talk with him. So, let me tell you a little bit about David, and then we can jump into the conversation. So, David Gushy is uh, the distinguished university professor of Christian ethics and director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia. And he is also the author or co-author or editor of 28 books, including the bestsellers Kingdom Ethics and Changing Our Minds. And he has appeared in so many other publications, written so many other articles as well. And today you're going to get to uh, meet David if you're not familiar with him and, and become a little bit more familiar with his work. So without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, David, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you, Caleb. I appreciate the invitation, my friend. Yeah. And, you know, you have... Uh, by the time that this episode has come out, your book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, is out now. And, you know, one of the places that I love to begin a lot of conversations is I love hearing the origin story for works of art. And so I would love to hear kind of where did this idea for writing this book begin with you and in your life? Well, I would say most immediately, um, trying to process the meaning of the Trump presidency mm-hmm. and um, and of the rather dramatic events that culminated in January 6th, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been following politics though, since I was a kid, my dad worked for the federal government in Washington. I grew up in, you know, in the shadow of DC. So I've always been kind of a, uh, a policy junkie. I should also mention that my dad served in Korea. My father-in-law served in uh, World War II. Um, a lot of my friends, mothers and fathers were federal government employees. Um, so Washington and the United States government and the civil service 
and the symbols of the country have always been closer to me, you might say, than maybe the average person because of where I grew up and how I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and also in Christian ethics, which is my field, a lot of what we do is is speak into public life and the public arena and politics and stuff. So for, I mean, I've written or edited 28 books by now, and several of them have been about faith and politics. Mm -hmm. But our situation in America has changed so dramatically. This is a very different kind of book because of the very different kind of situation that we're in right now, I think. And was was there something I know that you mentioned, you know, the Trump presidency and even the 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 capital rights that happened on January 6th. Was there anything else that like just just triggered you to go, OK, I think I because it's one thing to work it out yourself. It's a little bit of another thing to go. I want to I want to write a book about this. Well, um, I was um, appointed a faculty member at the Free University of Amsterdam in the spring of 20. Uh, 21 and didn't I was not able to be inaugurated to that position until about a year later because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so when you're inaugurated to a position at, at the university, they want you to give an inaugural address. Mm -hmm. They call it an orati. So um, in thinking about that inaugural, that was when I initially said, I would like to reflect for 40 minutes with my new colleagues about what's happening in democracy in America partly because they're not from here. And so in a sense, I was having a chance to reflect for them and with them about what's happening here. Um, so that was the initial writing impulse. And so that was like a 5,000 word address. Mm -hmm. And from the response I got that day, as well as the excitement I had about digging in, uh, I felt like, yeah, this is next. It jumped the line on ahead of so several other projects that were brewing to go ahead and write this, um, especially in preparation for the 24 election cycle. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to go back to what you mentioned. You mentioned um, that you've been following politics for a while and that your dad and father-in-law were involved in previous wars. And I don't know, maybe, maybe this is just my experience, but I'm like, I tried, I'm trying to pay attention more to politics and, and what's happening. And I would just love to hear from your experience of, what are some of the things in like the political landscape or the political nature that that maybe you know because you've been paying attention for so long that maybe like the average person like me doesn't know because we haven't been paying attention as long? Um, that's a great question. Uh, one thing, if you have a long time horizon, one thing you know uh, is that the partisan divisions are deeper than ever before. Mm -hmm. So my father, his job in Washington was to analyze public policy problems in the area of environment and energy. And in his job, he was to write briefing papers that could be equally well used by Democrats or Republicans or independents. And um, so he had to emphasize objectivity and balance, but he also said that um, there was a more of a shared understanding of truth and a shared sense that even if we disagree, we all love the country. And um, and so there was more bipartisan cooperation about things um, in the 60s, 70s and 80s when he was in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that has disappeared. It's only a very small number of Republican or Democratic congressmen or senators who even score in any kind of middle range of moderate where where they're anywhere within hailing distance of the other side. Um, and and uh, so a main thing to know that is, I think, a forerunner to the bigger problems is increasing partisan polarization, increasing incomprehension of people who look at the world the other way, difficulty in cooperating, um, and the gradual breaking down of the normal democratic process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what we've seen since 2016 is an acceleration of that breakdown, but it didn't begin in 2016. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, talk to me more about that, kind of how we got there, because sometimes it is, it's very, it's very easy for us to think, oh man, this, this just happened. But just as you were saying, it didn't start in 2016, didn't start in 2021, happened before that. Can you kind of, you know, take us through a little bit of what led us to where we are today? Um, let's say we, you live in a universe in which, um, you have a country that has two political parties. No, no other parties are really significant, right? And they're roughly evenly divided in, in the population. And they come to believe completely incommensurable things. Uh, abortion is bad. Abortion is a human right. Um, Same-sex marriage is bad. Same-sex marriage is a human right. Um, uh, you know... You name it, uh, up and down, up and down the ladder. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the women's movement was good. The women's movement actually was bad for children or women or whatever. Um, uh, uh, climate change is is a real problem. Climate change is a hoax. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a globalized economy is good for America. No, a globalized economy is actually bad for most people in America. Um, okay, so you end up having um, two parties, roughly evenly divided, who come to fundamentally disagree, first on policy issues, but also gradually on more fundamental questions of identity and loyalty. Mm -hmm. um, we, on our side, believe that they, on their side, are not just wrong-handed or wrong in their thinking, but incomprehensible and maybe even that they're bad. They're just bad people. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that they don't love the country the way that we do. Mm. Or in a certain Christian cadence, maybe we believe that the other side is evil or anti-God or demonic. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so a divided society in two parts with increasingly negative views of each other um, our democracy and its processes were not really built for that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. the, the basic kind of civility and cooperation, um, the the norms and principles and practices uh, of respecting the other and of honoring their motives and of, for example, conceding an election when you lose, because you know that well, we may not love them, but they did win and we'll have another chance in a couple of years. That has gradually eroded. Um, I think it's not quite symmetrical. I do think that the, the conservative side is more uh, angry and incomprehending of the other side somewhat than the liberal side is, but that's a judgment call. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly true that the conservative side has more Christians in it and the, those Christians are more likely to see the other side as morally wrong, morally reprobate, morally and spiritually evil, um, which makes it very difficult to cooperate. Um, so one reason I think we had our first major crisis over the outcome of an election where a vast percentage of the population was willing to believe lies about the legitimacy of the election and some group was willing to try to overturn the election is more deeply rooted in fundamental mistrust of each other and fundamental uh, unwillingness to live under the sovereign, you might say, under the leadership of the other side because they're believed to be so awful. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to follow up on uh, what you said. You mentioned that uh, the conservative side can sometimes be uh, a little bit more angrier and everything. Um, can you just elaborate just a little bit? on that i know that you said it was kind of your judgment call but i'd just be curious to hear more about that um well this is a good chance to kind of tie into a major uh theme in the book um yeah i think that i really think to understand what's going on you have to have to try to sympathetically enter into the perspective of both sides right it's really hard mm -hmm. for me to do but i was trained to do that so i'm trying right yeah and in the book i try so Here's the way here's the way the narrative is developing on the conservative Christian side, Catholic and Protestant. Um, and that is that America was once a Christian dominated country with 
a pretty firm sense of right and wrong that was uh, provided by church, faith, and the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, America has been drifting from that God and those values since at least the early 60s. Um, and that there is a group in uh, kind of an elite group in society that is actively attempting to continue that process so that America becomes more liberal and more secular. Um, and this group, often identified as the elites or the cultural elites, sometimes the, the woke, right? This group does not respect traditional religion, does not respect traditionally religious people, uh, and has an ideology that they want to advance everywhere they can. Like, and so when they're in charge of the government, they advance it there. When they're in charge of schools, they advance it there and universities and media and Hollywood and music and everywhere. Um, and that the, the values that they're attempting to advance are, are in the view of the conservatives, really damaging and wrong. Mm -hmm. Anti-God, anti-morality, not good for families. Um, and that they're not very tolerant of people who hold different beliefs. Um, by the year, I would say 2016, this had gotten to the to the place of it appears that we've lost um, the cultural battle for the soul of the country to the liberals. But we have now elected a president, Donald Trump, who says he'll be on our side, who will who will fight back against the woke and the politically correct and the liberals. Um, and so we need to support him, even if he's kind of crude. Um, but then as the Trump presidency evolved, um, I would say the loyalty to him grew and grew and the demonization of the other side grew and grew. And the idea that a loss in the 2020 election couldn't happen in a fair election and must not happen because of what is at stake grew and grew. And, and the idea that it's a kind of a fight to the finish and maybe the old rules don't apply and we have to fight by any means necessary to take back the culture and not allow the Democrats to be in charge grew and grew. And people began talking a little in some, not just kind of a uh, symbolic culture war language, but even a little more kind of flirting with actual violence. Mm -hmm. um, and Unfortunately, there are resources in Christian tradition and Christian history and in the Bible itself that can be brought into play if you want to start talking about violence against God's enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, the Joshua tradition or the Book of Revelation or Jesus, the holy warrior or whatever, right? Uh, yeah. Or even the Crusades from the Middle Ages or whatever. You can always draw on that. Um, and this began to grow and get more mainstreamed. And some of the people who, who showed up on January 6th were people who who were in this frame of mind they were already there mm -hmm. um so what i what i'm trying to say to conservative folks is i want to take seriously your your really negative reaction to cultural developments that you don't like um i want to say from a christian perspective and i'm a fellow christian i honor some of your concerns while wanting to argue with you about other of your concerns but um but I want to take them seriously. And I also want to say to the liberals, if you create an environment in which conservative Christians feel like they're being persecuted, uh, it may push them towards extremism and something to watch out for. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want to say that our democracy is a good thing. It's been built up carefully over 240 years plus earlier, and we dare not fritter it away or allow it to be eroded because we're so freaked out by cultural developments. Democracy itself is valuable. And so the book is partly about reminding Christians, even those who are conservative and very concerned about the culture, why democracy is still the way we want to resolve these differences. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's so much there that you said that I uh, just want to follow up on. I think the, the first thing I want to ask about is you mentioned about seeing both sides. And, and like working to do that and that you were trained to do that. Would you mind just like elaborating a little bit on like what, what have you done to help you see both sides, especially 
whenever it's one that you might disagree with very strongly. Um, in in uh, uh, writing this book, I dug around in conservative media, mm -hmm. um, Catholic and Protestant, as well as social media. I listened to the speeches of uh, candidates, some of whom, most of whom lost. Um, I I listened and read some books from scholars who are articulating more conservative perspectives, um, including a guy named Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame, um, uh, Adrian Vermeule, who I believe is still at Harvard Law School. I don't remember. Might be Yale. I, I, that escapes me right now. But there are scholars articulating arguments in the zip code related to that basically liberal democracy is no longer liberal. It is illiberal because it's been taken over by a kind of a woke ideology that is intolerant. Mm -hmm. um, and that the current paradigm is not working very well and we need to consider something different and looking at history for other paradigms like, uh, and looking at countries like Hungary, what Viktor Orban is doing there, or even before, especially before the invasion of Ukraine, there was a lot of interest in what what Putin was about in Russia on the values front, um, uh, or Poland. All of these are countries that get a chapter in the book because I talk about mm -hmm. all. Um, to say that it may be possible to use the levers of the government, either officially or unofficially, to bring cultural values back to where people want them to be. So, so I was listening to American scholarly and popular voices as well as those political parties and leaders in those other countries and what kind of arguments they were making. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I mean, I was an evangelical Christian, self-identified for 30 years. Um, so I, I know that world. I know the people in that world. I listen to them. Um, and so I myself have ended up more post-evangelical now, but I know, I know the evangelical mind and heart mm -hmm. and I read, I read them. So those are some ways. Um, and I hope I hope that maybe people who are more conservative who are listening would would appreciate that and would also be trying to listen to the people on the other side, too, you know, um, mm -hmm. and not just dismiss. Like if somebody makes a case for LGBT inclusion and tries to protect LGBT people from being mistreated. Understand why they're making that argument and why they think the state has a role in doing that, you know, um, and not just dismiss it as, you know, it's easy to dismiss something by throwing some kind of a label on it and saying, ah, well, that's just wokeness. Forget it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to do the same to the conservatives who I disagree with. I hope I hope that people would would try to engage my arguments as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about your motivation for wanting to do that, because that isn't like that isn't normal, sadly, like seeing the other side. What motivates you? Like, what's your why for doing that? Um. I think it's part of loving neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of understanding the culture that we live in. It may be part of coming up with win-win solutions that can help us um, endure living in community with people we disagree with. Mm -hmm. My father, again, you know, he said when he when he would um, write policy recommendations or analysis for the Congress. He had to write it in such a way that Democratic and Republican congressional people and staff could say, this is fair. This represents mm -hmm. the arguments of both sides. I've also was I was also taught you don't really understand your own argument if you don't understand the argument of the other side. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, lawyers are trained to get under the hood, try to understand what the other side is going to argue so that you can you can uh, make a better argument. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so social peace depends on, on, on people attempting to understand each other and come up with some win-win solutions. Otherwise, all I see is further tearing and division and talk of violence and talk of secession and talk of hatred. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty dire situation, I think, unless we learn to do better. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about whenever someone has like a a very extreme, like an extreme stance on something. Maybe they're um, either on, you know, on the left or the right or whatever. They're a little bit more radical. They're extreme. Maybe 
maybe violence is an option, something like that. I would just be curious to hear whenever you're talking with somebody like that, what, what does like, I don't know what helps you in conversations like that. Whatever, like the other person, like, it doesn't feel like the other person wants to see your side. What helps you in navigating that? Um, well, it is true that there are some people who have gone around the bend so profoundly that there's only so far a conversation can go. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if somebody, I try to have a conversation with somebody and they say, oh, you know, of course, that all the Democratic politicians are child trafficking pederasts. In other words, full QAnon, right? Mm-hmm. Um once somebody is deep in the weeds of of a conspiracy theory, a conversation becomes very difficult, right? I don't try to do those conversations. You know, the first time I actually engaged somebody who was contemplating violence for politics was but way back in the 90s and early 2000s when um, you would be too young to know to have lived through this probably, but there was a time where there was a lot of uh, violence at or near abortion clinics. And uh, there was a group um, that was moving beyond nonviolent strategies to violent strategies. And there were some shootings of abortion doctors and nurses and shootings at clinics. And I remember I, I was asked by the Southern Baptist Convention to write a document saying why, even if you're opposed to abortion, that is not what you should do. And so uh, this was in the brief period where the Southern Baptist Convention was asking me to do stuff for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wrote a document in 1994, 95, I think it was called Why the Killing of Abortion Doctors is Wrong. But after I wrote that, some people who were in that camp reached out to me and said, here's why you're wrong. Hmm. That was the only time I've ever had direct dialogue with somebody who was contemplating violence mm-hmm. as a matter of principle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't happened in this cycle. Hopefully it won't again. But um, it's a continuum that has to be taken seriously. In general, by the time somebody is contemplating violence, you're in a different, it's more of a security situation. You need law enforcement. But it's the people who are before that, the people who are frightened and angry and incomprehending and feel that the culture and their children are in dire risks and and they're they're in the ideological matrix that can produce extremism, but they've not gotten there yet themselves. That's who I'm trying to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> And um, in the book, I'm trying to say democracy was built in part to provide a nonviolent way of, res- of dealing with intractable differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. The idea is that everybody has a, has a vote who is a citizen and who is of age and they and representatives are put forward for different populations and different viewpoints and in a free and fair vote majority wins but like the congress of 435 people you're going to have some people who represent you very well and others who don't and they're going to hash out ideas and fight for two years until the next election and you accept that you're going to win some and you're going to lose some and you may be fundamentally disagreeing with some things that are passed but you're going to trust that this is the best way that human beings have come up with in pluralistic societies to resolve their differences, Hmm. or at least to live with each other while having the differences. Yeah. And so you say, this time I'm going to lose. This time it's going to be, you know, uh, Donald Trump will be president. Next time it may be, um, you know, Gavin Newsom from California or Joe Biden, whoever. Or, in you know, we're going to get our senator that we want this time. We're going to lose it the next time. But you agree to live in the community together and not kill each other, even if you lose the election. Mm-hmm. And you trust that from a Christian perspective that God, God is not absent from that process. Um, and that God honors the effort of human communities to live together without killing each other because, because God honors human life and God wants peace. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and so you say, okay, I'm going to love my neighbors in this way, even if I can't even understand them. Mm -hmm. Um, when talking to conservatives, I do try to help them think. And a lot of my writing over the last 30 years has been about, you know, a negative reaction to every modern development is not really a healthy place to be. And so let's kind of take it case by case, you know, yeah. um, uh, uh, just a kind of a knee jerk. The modern world is awful, uh, is not that's I mean, biblically, there's a lot of things you could argue about there. So let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, but also. I think the book, this democracy book, is partly about saying, here's why Christians who have also always been passionate about different issues decided in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, that democracy was better than dictatorship. It was better than anarchy. It was better than communism. It was better than fascism as a way to organize society and politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's one of the the one of my favorite parts of the book or one of my favorite sayings in the book is, and we've, we've been talking about it too, but acknowledging the other side, like, Hey, there, there is a reason to maybe be, to be skeptical of democracy, but democracy is our best option. You and could it, say least bad, even if you, if you want yeah. to be really cynical, you know, <laughs> um, because I mean, the, and the political philosophers have been talking about this for a long time. And I do acknowledge, cause I've read this political philosophy. It took a while for even the world's smartest philosophers to conclude that democracy was the least bad option. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at, uh, you know, the Greek philosophers, they talked about three main options for how you do government, the rule by the one rule by the few or rule by the many. Mm -hmm. So basically monarchy, oligarchy, or democracy. They were, they were worried about democracy because they thought it, it could end up being mob rule. Um, and that it could be out of control and anarchic. And so in the end, usually they favored some kind of oligarchy or eventually maybe some kind of mixed system, which ended up being part of what we developed in the U.S. Um, but what we learned through many, many centuries of having one person tell you what the laws and rules were going to be and also uh, enforce those laws and rules is that the rule by the one or even the rule by an oligarchy is doesn't lead to as much justice or as much respect for human rights or as much fairness or even as much wisdom as having more people involved. Mm -hmm. It also created huge succession problems. Look at like, who's going to be the next leader of Russia and how is that ever going to be determined without bloodshed? No. So, so in any political system, you need to resolve a, the succession question, who will be next and how will it be decided? We kind of had that worked out in America. We would have elections every two and four years. And those elections would be respected. And we would, but I think we're tearing that apart right now, even as we speak. And that's very dangerous. Because if you can't deal with the succession problem, then you have a recipe for violence with every election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that even makes me think of, and, and you write about this in the book, and was one of the things that made me think the most throughout it is you write how it's there's there's a tendency in us to think that this is just a u.s thing that hey this is something that's just happened in the united states but just as you mentioned earlier you give so many uh so many specific case studies and cases that this has happened this has happened throughout history this has happened throughout the globe can you talk about just how this is this is much more of like i don't know if a global trend is the right word to say but it's bigger than just what's happening in the united states it definitely is caleb i actually have seven contemporary countries well seven case studies five of them contemporary mm -hmm. um it's russia with putin hungary with victor orban poland with the law and justice party it's not just one person there um brazil with bolsonaro who was just voted out of office and the u.s with trump i also have two longer term studies of france after the french revolution and Germany in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have a chapter where I talk about modern day Israel uh, to some extent as well as a, a paradigm. Um, in all seven of the case studies, what they have in common is countries in which Christianity was either officially or unofficially the religion of the country for a long period of time. And countries in which 
uh, Christians had a dominant share of the population, Christians of a specific group, like Catholics in Poland and uh, Russian Orthodox in Russia. In the U.S., it was uh, uh, Protestants, um, white Protestants. In Germany, you know, it got divided after the Reformation. And in France, it was the Catholic Church. Um, in Hungary, it's more of a mix. But um, so you have a, a religious majority that had an official or unofficial connection to the state, and they were used to setting the terms of culture. And then gradually, or not gradually, that changed. In Russia, it changed with the Russian Revolution. In France, it changed with the French Revolution. Um, in, in Poland, you had uh, gradual erosion, but you also had communism imposed. Um, in, in the US, it was a gradual pluralization and secularization process. And in the end, what you find in all of these countries is deep discomfort on the part of traditional Christians that the country is losing its way. Mm -hmm. That, and democracy gets associated with liberalism, with racial pluralism, with um, loss of confidence in, in Christian values, a loss of adherence to Christian values, with the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, uh, immigration of multiple populations, uh, the gradual decline of the power of the white Christian population. Also, feminism is usually in that story, too. <laughs> and, and so a part of the population is unsettled or deeply distressed about these changes, and they push back. If they use the democratic process to push back, it's part of the ebb and flow of democracy. Mm -hmm. If they decide that democracy needs to be abandoned because, because uh, it doesn't work anymore for what we want, then you, you're talking more about authoritarianism or dictatorship or whatever. In Russia, Putin, Vladimir Putin, has pitched himself as the defender of Russian Christian orthodoxy. And in some cases, as the defender of European Christianity, Viktor Orban has done the same thing in Hungary. Um, in the period after the French Revolution, the Catholic Church in France was stripped of a lot of its rights and privileges and property. And for over 100 years was saying, you know, heck no to the revolution. We want a return of the monarchy. Or we'll go with some kind of dictatorship like around Napoleon as long as he's friendly to the church. Um, so to the extent that democracy gets associated with liberalism, secularism, modernism, pluralism, atheism, agnosticism, you name it, then democracy gets into the critique as well. I guess we don't want democracy because democracy is against everything we stand for. One of the things I say in the book is that this was really the Catholic Church's position about democracy until Vatican II in the 1960s. So, and it kind of, it's part of what we're hearing among some here in this country. And what's kind of sad is that we had a way of dealing with, with these issues that I think was pretty well established in 1789. Mm -hmm. That's that's now being poked at, like maybe we don't like 1789 anymore. Maybe we want something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that brings to mind, and we, we haven't talked about it yet, but it's, it's, it's a term that you use all throughout the book and it's authoritarian reactionary uh, Christianity. Yeah. And I know that we've, we've alluded to it in, in many different ways, but would you mind kind of explaining what that concept is and even tie it back to some of the examples and everything that you've talked about? Well, I think having all those examples on the table helps make it easier. Reactionary is a term in political thought for a posture of negative reaction to some kind of contemporary change. Right. Um, I don't know if you're a sports fan. Are you a football fan, Caleb? I am. Yep. Um, remember how when the NFL like changed the kickoff rules so that so oh. that you almost never get a kickoff that is returned. Right. I do. Yep. Okay. Um, there are a lot of football fans who have a negative reaction to that rule because mm -hmm. it takes a lot of the excitement out of the game. Right. Okay. Yep. Now um, imagine an overall posture of negative reaction to everything that has happened since 1962. Mm -hmm. um, you may know some people like that. Everything that has happened since 1962 is bad. 
that's what I would call reactionary. You you settle into a posture of negative reaction. Mm-hmm. Authoritarian is at the political level. It's the idea, you know, democracy. Maybe we don't like democracy. Maybe we would rather have um, what happens in society determined by uh, Christian political leaders or by a small council of people we trust um, or even by a dictator who we appoint, who who has our values at heart. Um, Another dimension of authoritarianism is the idea that pluralism is bad. What we want is uniformity and unanimity. Mm-hmm. We need we need all this chaos to go away and somebody just to say, in this country, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And the democratic process, you know, be damned, we're going to just kind of dictate the way it's going to go because it's better in the long run. Mm-hmm. So authoritarianism centralizes power. Reaction, reactionary posture says, you know, a, a strong negative to most or all modern developments. You put it together and say, let's make our political agenda be authoritarian, reactionary, and Christian. That's the kind of concern. That's where I'm focusing my concern in the book. I'm mm-hmm. suggesting that's not a very healthy Christian politics, and it's actually threatening democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that we've we've talked about some of these forms, but I, I would be really curious to hear, like, what are some of the like the common patterns that attacks on democracy look like? I know that we've talked about violence and sometimes you know that that might be a very obvious one but sometimes they're they're more subtle than that they always start out more subtle and so i would just love to hear what does the subtle nature of attacks on democracy look like yeah early in the book i um i cite kind of political scientists who talk about um some of the most characteristic uh threats to democracy bef- well before you get to violence like um uh creating an atmosphere of intimidation associated with uh, public political events mm-hmm. um, or threatening journalists um, or casting doubt on the fairness of elections um, or uh, demagoguing specific populations, targeting them as the source of the problem in society mm-hmm. um, uh, or say somebody is in power starting to fiddle with some of the checks and balances like um let's say you have an independent agency that assesses um whether an election was fair um you maybe shut that agency down or compromise its independence um or here's an example you know how we have public radio and tv Mm -hmm. supported by tax dollars and they have to be, they're supposed to be scrupulously fair and nonpartisan. Imagine a country in which the government said, that's not going to be the case. Um, the public radio and television is going to have to support the position of the regime. Okay. Mm-hmm. No violence is involved there, but you've, you've, you've changed the public arena. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, all kinds of fiddling with elections. Um I wrote about this one in in Hungary. Um, this is astonishing that this is possible. There's a thing called voter tourism in Hungary. Orban was concerned that there was one region that might not give him the votes that he wanted in parliament. And so voters were shipped to that region to vote there so that the parliamentary results would be more like what he wanted them to be. If you change the law to make that possible, that's one threat to democracy. If you then ship the people to there so that you can get that result, that's the next logical thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, creating a supermajority in parliament or Congress so that all vetoes can be overridden, um, in a sense, it it uh, it neuters the, parla- the legislative branch of government. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of messing around with the, if, with the judiciary. If you weaken the powers of the judiciary um, so that like it doesn't have the ability to review certain kinds of laws or decrees, then you are contributing to authoritarianism. And there's lots of like uh, specific things like that that are talked about in the book. 
most Christians, how many Christians pay close attention to stuff like that, right? I mean, how many Christians think about, I wonder if public broadcasting is is being fair, or I wonder if anybody's fiddling with the election administration in our county or in our local area. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff has to be protected. It's all part of the culture and apparatus of a, of a democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, us, us Christians are not typically good at paying attention to the public life. It's more of our own individual faith or what's happening in the church and not right. so much the greater. That's yeah. right. And, you know, you can lose a democracy by not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. You You have this quote, and I think it ties into what we were just talking about which I want to read is about language, about paying attention to uh, the language that is used as well. And you say language matters because words are essential to human life and language is a part of how we treat people. I'd love to hear what are, what are some of the things like the subtle, the subtle ways that we use the language or language can be used to dehumanize people or not love uh, people as we would our neighbor. Um, Let me, uh, pick up an example that I use in the book because it it shows up in every country and the modern group that I discuss. Um, authoritarian, reactionary Christian leaders target LGBTQ people mm-hmm. with their language. Um, and I quote uh, in, in Russia and in Brazil and in Poland and in Hungary, um, either church leaders that are closely connected to the state or state leaders themselves. Uh, I think it was in Poland where there's, um, I quote a bishop who says, who talks about like the rainbow plague. Hmm. I also quote a Polish parliamentarian who, who routinely writes using a slur word for gay people that is no longer understood to be polite, to be used in polite company. Um, so the targeting of trans people or uh, lesbian or gay people by politicians um, using derogatory language has proven to be effective for some of them in in gaining support from conservative Christian folks who who really want somebody to stand against the, the gays, mm-hmm. quote unquote, right? But what it leads to is a more dangerous environment for these human beings who are our sisters and brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, same thing with anti-immigrant language, um, with language that is either openly or uh, dog whistle racist language, right? Or even mm-hmm. talking about our enemies, our political enemies as demonic, right? Um mm-hmm. Anytime you take it to the cosmic level or you use um, language that compares people to rodents like uh, vermin or rats or insects or roaches. I mean, my dissertation was on the Holocaust, and I I learned a long time ago what happens when governments systematically use dehumanizing language of of populations, makes them targets. Mm -hmm. So civility... um, Civility is not everything, but setting careful limits on our language is part of how you keep a democracy or any community together. Mm-hmm. You know, with with everything that we've talked about, like, what can we do? What can we do? What does it look like to be, you know, a, a faithful Christian, you know, defend democracy? Like, what do, what does that look like? Um, I think we need to study up on the scriptural resources for democracy, some of which I talk about in the book. I talk about Mm -hmm. congregationalism and um, covenantalism, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the uh, abolitionist uh, social justice tradition of the black church in the U.S., um, and some other resources too. So study up on the history, study up on scripture, try to understand how it was that very devout Christians concluded that democracy was better system than monarchy or Christendom right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or any kind of authoritarianism. Um, And um, ratchet down the rhetoric with those that we disagree with. Um, Make an argument 
don't call a name, mm-hmm. right? Um, try to identify the difference between politicians who pose a threat to democracy and politicians who you just disagree with on policy. Mm-hmm. Um, just as an example, um, let's say it's Nikki Haley or um, Donald Trump as your finalists for the nomination of for the Republican Party in 2024. I don't see any evidence that Nikki Haley poses a threat to democracy. I do that Donald Trump mm-hmm. as of his track record. That matters. Um, policy differences matter less than that difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also look for authoritarian authoritarianism on the Democratic side, too. If you're a progressive listener, look to see whether the candidates that you prefer honor the limits and norms of democracy and the rule of law. Right. Mm-hmm. And listen to their language, whether they demonize the other side, whether they're careful in their rhetoric. Um, so democracy now, caring about democracy is about more than voting. It's mm-hmm. about paying attention to the norms and the civilities and the practices that are significant for a democracy and holding oneself accountable to that and holding fellow Christians accountable to that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you briefly mentioned several of the ideas in there. Uh, I would love to just touch on one of those. And you, you mentioned the idea of the democratic covenant. Can you talk and elaborate oh, yeah. just a little bit on that? I have a whole chapter on that. I, I, yeah. I am in my work just overall as an ethicist in the last 10 years or so, increasingly attracted to retrieving the idea of covenant. Mm -hmm. Um, Covenant is obviously a central biblical idea. A covenant skeleton, you might say, the skeletal structure of covenant goes all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, A sacred agreement between God and people, as well as um, the sacred agreements that people make with each other. Covenant. Mm -hmm. A covenant goes beyond a contract. A covenant has more of a binding and and even, dare we say it, holy quality to it. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea that a a church community is covenantal should be very familiar to a lot of people who are listening. If you're in a Baptist church or a a Reformed church or many other churches, there may be a church covenant that, that says, hey, this is what we believe in. This is why we are... This is why we are forming ourselves as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that a political community should be also be seen as covenantal goes back into the very early modern pre-democratic and democratic tradition. Yeah, I think it's one of the most positive legacies of the Puritans and uh, the Baptists. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Puritans came over into New England, they, they talked about covenanting together to create a certain kind of community. Um, I quote the Massachusetts Constitution that uses covenant language to describe what they're doing. Um, But then I think it has to be modernized. Covenant can be taken in a more exclusive way, like only Christians are part of the covenant or only Christians like us are part of the covenant. But the idea of citizenship involves making and keeping promises to the community and maybe even to God about how we're going to participate in the society. And and I think in this country, one of the promises that we need to be more explicit about is, if I'm a citizen, I will do what I can to protect democracy itself from eroding. Mm-hmm. I, for example, communicating respect for the results of elections and honoring the peaceful transfer of power and uh, always refraining from any threat of violence against people I disagree with and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I call on the book for political leaders to to revive the use of covenant. I think the last time I knew of a political leader who used that language much, maybe was Bill Clinton briefly in his presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think, I think it undergirds a lot of what we really want our politicians to do. Like, for example, when a police officer stops me. I want to know that they have a covenantal understanding of their relationship with me. Mm-hmm. They they have more power than I do, but they also have they have 
not just laws and rules, but a sense of how they are to relate to me as a police officer. Mm-hmm. The district attorney has certain responsibilities that go with that role. The the secretary of state, the president, the governor, what we all do in relation to one another. Um, the civil rights movement revived the language of covenant to basically say, uh, Martin Luther King called for a, a renewal of the democratic covenant in which everybody gets an equal share of participation. Mm-hmm. Uh, covenant, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the original American political covenant, well, well it was it was white people only. And we're having, we've had to learn over the centuries to get beyond that. Um, so I think anybody who talks about the democratic covenant today wants to talk about a multiracial and inclusive covenant where everybody, everybody counts. Uh, and everybody matters. So I hope that that suggestion about covenant, that people really take that seriously. And I'm really glad you asked me about it. Yeah. Well, I have I have two other questions. And I know that we're coming up at our time. If you have the time, I'd love to ask them. And if not, I, we can wrap up. No, go ahead. I'll I'll, I'll try to be brisk. <laughs> I answer okay. them quite sometimes. No, I, I was going to say, I'm I'm good on the time. I don't mind it going long. I just want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh the the one thing that I want to make sure that I ask is I know that we've covered so many other things or so many things in the book, but I always love just asking people, is there anything that we haven't talked about? And there's so many things that we could talk about that you want to make sure that we cover in regards to our conversation or the book or anything like that. Um, I hope people will take seriously the chapter on the black American democratic tradition. Hmm. Um, because African-Americans were excluded from the covenant, mm-hmm. treated, enslaved, um, and then were the victims of white terrorism and, and Jim Crow and lynching and segregation. Um, that so many uh, Black Americans continued to fight for democracy, to believe in it, to ask for full participation in a system that they believed had good principles that were worth um, protecting that so many uh, African-Americans fought and died for American democracy in World War I and World War II in, in Korea and Vietnam and the Civil War, even when um, there was no full equality and, and full justice, um, is is tremendous testimony to people who, who believed in a democracy that had not ever been fully realized. Um, and the headquarters for a lot of democratic activism in the African-American tradition has been the black church. So what is sometimes called the social gospel tradition of the black church or the abolitionist tradition, I think has something to teach all pro-democracy people in the U.S. or anywhere around the world. So I, I, I would want people to pay attention to that and to listen to a community that, well, I, that I quote a, a guy in the book, uh, who says the truest Democrats, little d Democrats in American history are African-Americans because they're the ones who understand how much it costs to really perfect and have a genuine democracy. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I want to ask you about is what going through this process, even even just with your, uh, I guess I want to expand it even to just your political engagement or even just the work with this book. I would be curious to hear what did you learn about Jesus in that? Um, I think that that it is hard to um, okay, I'll, I'll say it this way. I think that authoritarian reactionary Christianity by settling into a posture of anger and fear and sometimes contempt is settling into a spirit that is opposite of the spirit of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to identify democratic politics with Jesus or as if like Jesus would have been running, you know, on somebody's ticket somewhere, right? He's He transcends that, right? Yeah. But love of neighbor, um, respect for the dignity of the other, um, standing up for those who did not count in his community, mm-hmm. like women and children and lepers and you know so on um some of the deep 
values that undergird democracy as I understand it, they align with Jesus and the way he treated people. Mm. Um, it is not always something that Christians talk about, but I, I would say it's the dignity of each person. It's the inclusion of every person as valuable. It's the sacrifice on behalf of the other. It's the love of neighbor. It's Jesus's commitment to justice. Mm -hmm. um, all of that, I think, aligns with democratic values and, and Christians who have supported democracy have got that. They've understood that through the centuries. Mm. Well, David, I know that people are going to want to get your book, your your latest book, you know, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies and Keep Up With You. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Um, my website, uh, uh, davidpgushy.com. Um, and... Uh, Erdman's. Erdman's is the publisher of the democracy book. You can go to their site. Um, you can go to, you know, I like encouraging going to locally owned bookstores, but also Amazon um, uh, is has it at the top of their list of my stuff right now. So I also have a Substack page. Um, mm -hmm. My name is unique. Just look up DP Gushy at DP Gushy on all the socials or David P. Gushy. It won't be hard to find me. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, just the wonderful conversation. And just thanks so much for doing the work and for sharing it with us today. I appreciate the conversation, Caleb. And um, you ask good questions. And I look forward to being in dialogue with you some more and with those who are listening to you as well. So as I was reflecting on my conversation with David, it brought to mind uh, two quotes about democracy that I, I want to read and just elaborate just a little bit. Um, one is from uh, C.S. Lewis, and he says, I am a Democrat because I believe in the fall of man. I think most people are Democrats for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of de defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. He goes on and says, the real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject that slavery because I see no man fit to be the masters. And he wrote that in Present Concerns. And, you know, he, I don't know if he would say it the, the same way today, but I think the idea that he's getting at is that I don't know if there's anybody who deserves that, um, that power over anyone else. You know, just what David was talking about. No one person, the few do not, do not, can't handle responsibly the power over the many. And that's why we need democracy for that reason. The other quote that I want to, read is from Renald Neighbor and is from Children of Light and Children of Darkness. He says, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. And I think just having those, those checks and balances, those balancing each other out, because as, as much as we would like to believe that that we can handle the responsibility, that we can handle the power. The truth is, is that we can't. We're not always going to be able to do that. We're not always going to be able to handle that as well. Or maybe you think that you're able to handle that, but if the power gets into another person's hands, you're like, you know what? I don't know if I want that person to have that power. And so those those are just two quotes that that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this conversation. And again, it's types of things like that that I share on my Substack each and every single week. Things that are making me think, things that are just engaging my curiosity and engaging my imagination or provoking um, some of the some of the things that I'm thinking about. 
right now. And again, you could just go to the show notes and subscribe to uh, to my Substack, and you'll get an email each week with the three things that I am thinking about right now. And I think that's all that I have for today. And so I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to David for being on the podcast and the great conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.